There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Tonight's last-ditch Brexit dinner between Boris Johnson and the EU's Ursula von der Leyen cut off to a bit of an awkward start. We're on a tight ship here. Yeah, I think Will things improve? Will concessions be made on those red lines? We'll have live reaction from Brussels, the UK, and joining us here in studio, CEO of Vulcan Consulting and former Fine Gael Minister, Lucinda Creighton, and Sinn Féin TD, Matt Carthy. And government under fire for leaving student nurses unpaid while approving pay rises for judges and reversing pension cuts. Plus warnings over COVID-19 vaccine for those with significant allergies. And should we open up travel from the US and Canada to Ireland in time for Christmas? Do get in touch on Twitter. Our hashtag is always tonight's VMTV. live from Brussels with the very latest by Shona Murray, Europe correspondent with Euro News. Good evening, Shona. The mood has been Hello, Kira. pretty pessimistic, I think, in the EU, in Brussels for the last number of days. What was the mood like there this evening? Yeah, same thing really hasn't changed. There's been an air of pessimism since Monday, since we heard from Michel Barnier that uh, there hadn't been any movement or development or progress on talks. I think that the removal of the offending legislation in the internal markets bill, the part that breached the Irish protocol, and the fact that the UK decided to deactivate or remove that, I think that added some important momentum to the talks, even though they're very separate issues. And the agreement um, in the Joint Committee on the Irish Protocol today, I think that was also, you know, put some a good, I suppose, tone on the talks tonight. At the same time, speaking to diplomats, uh, officials and so on, and as Michal Martin said, there really is a strong consensus that we're on the precipice of either a no deal or a deal. It's still 50-50. So what are we hearing about the dinner that I think is happening at the moment? What course are they on? What's the atmosphere like? Paint me a picture. We actually, you know, what's interesting is no, we're not hearing anything. Uh, people, the, the meeting itself is Michelle Barnier, Ursula von der Leyen, David Frost, uh, Boris Johnson and some officials. But uh, even speaking to people who aren't in the room, but who are close to them, they're not getting a readout. Um, they've been talking now for around two and a half hours. So I think we can possibly say that that's a good sign. I think no matter what, that we might be disappointed with tonight, regardless. I mean, hopefully there'll be bitter disappointment and I suppose panic almost if they walk away and say, look, we couldn't uh, bridge the gap. But at the same time, remember, there won't be any, you know, uh, 
breaking of the deadlock per se on the technical issues because of course Ursula von der Leyen as president of the commission represents the commission who's doing the negotiating of the member states but the member states will have to agree to anything at the same time Michel Barnier is there so he's been leading it he'll know what the mandate is and, and I suppose the limits of which can be agreed to so we'll expect some sort of statement anytime soon really what is the relationship like, I suppose, between Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen? I mean, is there a, a sort of a mutual respect and friendship and a sense of trust between the two parties? I wouldn't say there's a friendship. I wouldn't even say there's a huge amount of trust um, because, remember, Boris Johnson has sort of, um, well, he campaigned for Brexit if you want to go back that far. Um, the EU would say that a lot of the Brexit um, campaigning was undertaken based on a lot of mistruths and, you know, um, alternative facts, maybe, uh, about what the EU is about. I think that the fact that um, Brexit has dominated Brussels for four years, when other really important issues, serious threats to the EU, like, you know, uh, the, the fractiousness around migration, um, around misinformation, around, you know, various geopolitical issues, they've taken sort of, they've, um, you know, been cast aside because the EU's had to deal with Brexit. And then the business about the internal market bill that really backfired on the UK and destroyed uh, trust, which is why one of the big issues at the moment in the trade negotiations is around the fact that the EU wants strong governance pr principles in order to be, and to be able to retaliate if the UK breaches any of the deal. Trust is in uh, short supply. I think it's a cordial relationship. They've had difficult conversations over the past few weeks. The last one on, on Monday and then one on Saturday, they didn't go so well. And the only time they've actually met was in January. Um, they have this, this, this is the first time they're meeting since the UK left the EU because, of course, um, they haven't been able to do that because of COVID. And, and they're also two I... very different personalities. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I think that is a fair and accurate observation. If a deal is done, let's say, before the end of the year. Is there time to put it all together and to put it in place? There was some talk this evening, I heard a German uh, MEP saying, you know, there will be potentially an extra plenary session between Christmas and the new year. Yeah, they'll have to be. I mean, obviously that time is getting short. We're in borrowed time, we've said it all before. There is a, um, a date penciled into the 28th of December for the parliament to sit and to debate and then to ratify the deal. So there really is, there will be time for that. I think the, the key thing is around substance to get a deal and really to worry about procedure afterwards. But I, but I would say that the parliament won't agree to a deal being handed to them as, as a fait accompli, i.e. that the deal is just Im implemented in January and the parliament votes on it afterwards. It will have to be done uh, in order for the parliament to be able to vote and ratify it that way. All right, we have to leave it there. But uh, Shona Murray, thanks so much for that uh, update. Lucinda, we heard there that the, you know, the mood has been pretty pessimistic and no signs of huge lifting of that mood uh, this evening and very little coming from that talk. But do you feel that Boris Johnson has gone there to do a deal? I do, actually. Yeah, I'm a little bit more optimistic. Uh, I don't think that Boris Johnson has gone to Brussels to... Um, to fail. Um, I think that he needs to deliver a deal. Uh, obviously, um, due to the coronavirus pandemic, the British economy, like all economies, is really struggling. He's had a, a pretty torrid six months um, domestically, if you take Brexit out of the picture. Um, and I think what will be unleashed potentially 
on the 1st of January if there's no deal will really, really damage him and his government. So I think he wants a deal now. Um, I certainly hope he wants a deal. And I think he's there to try and do business. I don't I agree with Shona completely. I don't think a deal will be done in the next um, 12 hours or so. No, we're not going to see any white smoke. No, I, I don't think so. But I think that there can be um, the sort of the, the laying of, of, of uh, foundations, if you like, for a deal. Now, that's been going on for quite a while. So, you know, this is very protracted, more protracted even than usual EU negotiations uh, but I think that um, they will get there. And yet if we hear this evening Lucinda that that meeting that dinner has gone very badly do you think that's the end of it? No yeah I mean that would that would certainly be a cause for concern but um, Angela Merkel, Chancellor Merkel um, who holds the presidency of the council and it is a priority of the German presidency to conclude a deal with the UK and Germany traditionally um, certainly over the last four or five years has taken a much more pragmatic uh, view of Brexit than say for example the French. Um, Germany and Chancellor Merkel in particular I think uh, will want to to see a deal concluded. She's a deal maker. Um, she spoke to the Bundestag this evening in anticipation of her uh, presence at the EU Council tomorrow um, and she has has expressed um, reasonable optimism that a deal can be done and just a few of the things that Boris Johnson has said in the last 12 hours or so I mean he has he has you know on some of the key sticking points he has definitely <coughs> I believe opened up some room for manoeuvres so for example um, on the whole issue of this dynamic question of you know if the UK changes its regulation over the the months or years ahead how will that be resolved and um, he has um, said that sanctions cannot be automatic but I think that creates uh, a bit of wiggle room it, yeah a bit of wriggle room to say well you know there could be a process um, to arbitrate um, there could be some sort of a, a, a yeah. way to to figure out those issues um, a, a, you know a, a process that would be transparent and that might be acceptable to both the UK and the EU and that's kind of how mm. it would normally work frankly in a, in a trade deal anyway Matt do you think there's going to have to be concessions from both sides and I think what we're hearing is there might be a little bit of movement from the UK <clears throat> on the level playing field but perhaps an exchange for that there's going to have to be movement from the EU when it comes to fishing and fishing quotas and fishing rights if the EU does that what's the potential impact on the Irish fishing industry well first of all I actually think Lucinda's right logic would dictate that Boris Johnson hasn't gone over to Brussels to come back to London with one arm as long as another I think he, clearly he is setting up um, to reach an agreement now this people is people would say logic yes yeah, so <laughs> that was the point listening. I was going to make this is Brexit and logic sometimes does go out the window and we've seen that in too many occasions in the past so I think you could have a scenario where both the EU and the British government would be up for uh, a deal and the negotiators will be up for the deal but semantics and events will uh, you could just over override that in terms of the implications of um, you know, any compromise we're in a fortunate position in the first instance in that now the Irish protocol is as locked in as any agreement with a British government can ever be locked in you know there's one thing I'm absolutely sure of is that whatever comes out at the end of this deal um, and the end of this negotiation if there is a deal and the British government will immediately try and undo it um, because that's the, the way the negotiate but, minute, in terms of the potential impact on fisheries yeah here. and it could be potentially devastating because you know we know that our own fishing communities have traditionally got a raw deal in terms of EU quotas and there is what's called the relative stability in terms of the quotas. So we can only increase our quotas if all EU waters, despite um, um, all EU quota is actually increased. So it means that for some very important catches, the 
percentage of fish from Irish and British waters that Irish fisher um, and fishing fleet can get is minimal. Um, and that's a historic failure that needs to be addressed. I think the need to address that will be compounded if we have a situation where there is a negotiated settlement that allows even an increased um, amount of the British waters um, stock to revert back um, to British, British fleet. So um, I think one of the lessons we have to learn out of all of this is that when the Irish governments and the Irish political establishment in the broadest possible sense has a clear, defined position and objective within EU negotiations, we can actually deliver. I think that's been evidence in the fact that we've been able to utilise our connections and our friends that we have in the US, but also the relationships that we've all built up over many years at a European level. in terms of Brexit, but there's a lot more that we need to do in terms of European reform. Let's make no bones about that either. Listen, at one stage we thought state aids and the rules around state aid were going to be difficult. Do you no longer think that's the case? You think it's this really regulatory uh, alignment issue, but you feel that Boris Johnson can move on that? I do, and I've always, I mean, I've always seen that as being by far the most complicated. I mean, the reality is, in my view, the UK government, I mean, it's, it's a sort of, it's a liberal economy. The UK government is not, um, I think, instinctively, intuitively going to, you know, set about um, bankrolling um, unviable companies um, in the UK. That might have been a, a slight sort of pet project of Dominic Cummings, but as we all know, he departed uh, Downing Street a few weeks ago. Um, it's not its not really the sort of the modus operandi of the UK economy. And I, I never really thought that that was going to be um, something, uh, you know, the rock upon which this would fail. Likewise with fisheries, although fisheries has definitely become more complicated. I think the thing about fisheries is it's tangible for British voters. And, you know, Boris Johnson... In the might, way financial services, yeah, for example, just Regulation yeah. is a bit harder to comprehend, but um, fisheries is very tangible. And Michael Gove, Boris Johnson and others made a big deal about taking back control of um, fishing fleets and fishing trawlers. And it, you and know, it's that, sovereignty, isn't it? They it, really it, tie it that really, into the sovereignty yeah, it really issue. Su- it really sort of sums up the sovereignty issue. So it, it, does, it does matter. The EU has already uh, put on the table a pretty significant um, compromise deal on fisheries. I think the EU... EU will move a bit more and it will impact all of the fishing nations in the EU in Ireland obviously but also Spain France and others um, I and I think wonder... a lot of it will be about the implementation how long the implementation process will will be um, and that's part of the negotiation but I do think it can be worked out. I just wonder how difficult if Boris sort of moves on this regulatory alignment thing and fudges it uh, a little and says, look, yeah. we won't allow for there to be, you know, um, an automatic mm-hmm. you know, sanction to be put on the mm-hmm. UK if we don't go mm-hmm. along with future laws that the EU might introduce. Yeah. How does he sell that back well, I, to his Brexiteers? I because mean, yeah. that's not taking control of our laws, no. is it? Well, look, I mean, none of this really is. But, you know, let's um, let's see how he can package it and market it to his both the 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 sort of hardcore in his party and the public at large, I think part of his his line will be um, this works both ways. If we and the UK, by the way, you know, has very high environmental standards, very high standards in other areas, and arguably they could say, well, we may imp- we may raise our standards, and then that'll be a point for negotiation with the EU. So he can kind of portray. I mean, it's, it's the big nation thing where they sort of like to portray themselves as you know being a sort of standard bearer on the on the global stage i mean you know not really reflecting the reality of the size of the united kingdom um but i think he will play it that way and i think the fact that it would be a negotiated process it would be a sort of an independent process i think 
I think there's a landing zone there for a deal and I think he can sell it. There will be a cohort in his party who will never accept this. They want the scorched earth solution. Um, they wanted no deal. But he, they look, he's never, he's never going to satisfy all of those people. He just needs to, to be able to, to basically get this approved in the House of Commons and have a sufficient number in his own party. And I think most Tories actually do want some sort of a deal. I don't think that they want Armageddon, as it's been described on the 1st of January, in UK ports and UK airports. Okay. Well, let's just go to the UK because we're joined now by author and columnist Ella Whelan. Ella, you are a, a Brexiteer and I'm wondering if you've been listening to our panel in studio this evening, if you feel that Boris Johnson has gone over there you know, to make compromises, to make concessions. Is the feeling among you know, arch-Brexiteers that he's going to battle it in the end? <laughs> I mean, it might be wishful thinking to think that Boris Johnson is going to come out of this with anything other than a kind of even a best mild form of sellout. I think we, although I will say that I don't think there are many uh, Brexit supporters or should I say more accurately, Democrats, Remainers who accept the vote from 2016 included in that, who thought that Boris Johnson was going to be the uh, defender of democracy, the hero of this particular um, saga, it, that wasn't ever going to be the case. I think that the which is really important to, and, and the speakers on your panel have sort of alluded to this in their comments just now, that it's important to zoom out and remember what this is really all about, because while there are some very specific and important things being uh, haggled over at the moment, fisheries and state aid and things like that, the central question remains, which is the one that was posed in 2016, which is, uh, are we going to leave the European Union? What is the health of democracy um, in the UK? Who has political control and political power? Does it rest with the hands of the people, as Brexit, as Brexit argued for? Um, or does it lie elsewhere? And I think those things are still not answered. And that's why, actually, though this might seem like a bit of a ridiculous late night meal actually it's quite important but ellie i think you do accept at this stage that there is going to be a deal that's what you feel is going to happen and i'm wondering you know we're talking here about the concessions that both sides are going to have to make what do you think is going to be an acceptable concession for boris to make well look i mean the, there's a lot of panic and fear-mongering i think even though fear-mongering, I mean, it's a fear-mongering that's been going on for years around no deal at this point. And there's a suggestion that it's going to be economic Armageddon, that you know, it's going to ruin people's lives. And there might be a fair amount of truth in that, because part of the problem is that the uh, last few years have been basically obfuscation among British, the British political elite among, uh, about Brexit, and that has caused a huge amount of disruption and damage. But do I need to remind people that we were posed this threat in 2016? We were told, voters in the UK, that you know everything but the world was going to come around our ears if we voted to the European Union. Uh, and it didn't. And actually, more importantly, people were recognised the possibility of that risk and took the risk anyway. The central point was that the political demand for greater democratic control was really trumped everything else. So I think you need to remember that when you're thinking about the value of what happens in these last hours of these negotiations. Because for me, anyway, whether he fudges a deal, uh, you know, whether he goes for broke and actually goes for no deal, 
the bigger picture is the kind of gene has been let out of the bottle in terms of democracy. There are many questions been opened about the future of politics, not just in Westminster, but in Brussels, okay. in Dublin, lots of different countries. And Ella, that's I very exciting. I just want to put that point back to um, Lucinda. She talks there about a lot of fear-mongering in the sense of Armageddon and it hasn't happened. But do you think if we don't get a deal, it is a type of Armageddon for a lot of Irish businesses? Um, well, Brexit hasn't happened yet, really. I mean, I mean, technically, de facto, it has. But we've had this transition phase. So um, I think we will, we will certainly find out uh, in January. And if there's no deal, you know, I think that the... the the uh, complications, the bureaucracy, the potential for tariffs, customs declarations, all of that um, will inevitably um, put a huge burden on the British economy um, and a, a, a burden, a lesser burden on the rest of the EU, Ireland being disproportionately impacted. So, I mean, it's in nobody's interest for that to happen. I'm just getting some breaking news uh, there coming from that meeting, that d dinner in Brussels. It says talks will continue. But until Sunday, they've put a deadline of Sunday, large gaps remain between the parties. Yeah, and I think just as Lucinda is setting out you know, some of the challenges that would present in the event of a no deal, a lot of those challenges are going to present either way. Because at the end of this, we're not going to have the same free trade in position as is currently in place. So there are going to be diversions. So that's going to create... And I wonder, Matt, to be honest, has that message, you know, been pushed enough by government to businesses well, out there, I've been to talking... smaller businesses, that even with a deal, there are going to be huge changes, costly changes? Government, I would say, yes, they have. But I was actually talking to um, somebody who's working in this field in terms of advising companies, um, particularly in the border region in recent days. And they were telling me that there's huge um, you know, lack of clarity with regard to the position vis-a-vis um, -vis, um, customs, both to Britain, but very importantly, those companies who use Britain as a land bridge into the rest of the European Union, um, people might, and I think, have a sense that you know, they'll be able to continue as, 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 as is. There is a huge, um, there's a huge problem in terms of the lack of capacity on um, transport routes that bypass Britain. In other words, um, cargo, ships, and also um, freight planes. There's, you know, there's minimal in I terms just... of the potential we have. So Britain as a land bridge is crucially important, but also the access to the British market itself, which to most in my constituency, businesses which are, you know, agri-food to, to a you, large degree. Uh, very quickly, because you obviously are representing a border county, and today we got a little bit of, um, you know, clarity from Michael Gove in terms of how trade is going to work between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Were businesses along the border feeling reassured by that? I think so. Yes, and I, I think it. And as I said earlier on, it was, you know, it, it it is very reassuring that we're not in that position. But make no mistake about it. The border is still a problem. I think the one thing that we need to do now is utilise um, the provisions of the protocol to actually develop and enhance all, uh, the all-Ireland economy, which hasn't been utilised in the past. And of course, I'm going to say, let's start planning to get rid of the border in its entirety and have the conversation around Irish unity, because we don't want to be in the situation that the Brexiteers are tonight. We're on the brink of the final negotiations. They don't know what's going to happen. And nobody's going to be surprised to hear that sheer point of view this evening. I don't know if Ella is still there. Is Ella on the line? I think Ella, you were in agreement, weren't you, that this has really, you know, highlighted the conversation and focused a light on the issue of a united Ireland. And you're saying that as a Brexiteer. 
Yeah, I don't think it's that shocking saying it as a Brexiteer because the question, you know, the central question for us is an issue of sovereignty. And I think that, you know, the shakeup of the status quo poses some very real and exciting opportunities for those of us that might want to see a united Ireland. Uh, the question of a border poll has been raised and shown more support for it in Ireland. And I think that's, you should grab that with, grab the ball by the horns and run with that because populism, democracy, sovereignty, these are all issues that are being talked about again, haven't been talked about for decades, actually. Right. And that's a very exciting thing. The problem with Sinn Féin is uh, they want a united Ireland to make sure that they're signed up to the European Union, which to me is a kind of backwards way of looking at independence and sovereignty, which I won't argue oh. with him on that point tonight. <laughs> uh, I don't think people can quite cope with that conversation this evening. There's so much else going on. Um, listen, I just want to get your reaction to that word coming from Brussels. Look, we didn't expect to be this huge breakthrough this evening and, you know, champagne corks to be popping. But do you see it as a positive or negative sign that they're, you know, putting a limit on these talks? It's going to end on Sunday, so they say, yeah. uh, but large gaps remain. Who will be, be the party to walk away if the talks don't um, deliver a deal by Sunday? I mean, that's the other side of the, the, the coin, you know. Um, Boris Johnson has said that the UK will stay at the negotiating table. I can assure you the EU will not be the ones to walk away. So, I mean, this could go on for another while yet. They could be having their Christmas turkey in the Berlaymont um, at the rate they're going. Um, no, look, I think it's I think it's reasonably positive. I mean, we have to get a proper readout and see what the mood music was and what the what the dynamics were and, and you know, what direction this is travelling in in terms of compromise. But, um, you know, certainly it, it's better than, than negotiations being cut off. Um, I think there is a glimmer of hope um, and as I said, you know, I, I, I'm not in any way naive. I, I think there are huge um, obstacles to be to be overcome. But uh, I am optimistic that a deal will be done. Uh, I know logic doesn't always apply when it comes to Brexit. Um, but uh, I do think, I mean, we saw to Boris Johnson this time last year. Ultimately, when he needed to do a deal, he showed up and he did it. Um, and I hope that that will be um, what, what happens on this occasion too. All right, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Lucinda Creighton for joining us and to Ella Whelan for joining us on Skype. Matt Carthy is staying with us. And after the break, the government are accused of being tone deaf, approving pay rises for judges, while some student nurses remain unpaid. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You're very welcome back. 
Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy is still with us and we're joined also in studio by Fianna Foyle Senator Malcolm Byrne. Uh, good evening to you, Senator. Uh, outside of Brexit, um, there was one other, I suppose, issue that really caused controversy uh, in uh, the Oireachtas today and that is the pay increase that is due to judges and the reversal of some pension uh, cuts for ex-Tishi at a time where there's been no real movements on the payment of student nurses for the work that they're doing while on placement. The optics for Fianna Fáil are pretty awful. Uh, the, the optics are uh, and uh, I think there are, there are probably three issues here. I think there's what is the current situation with regard to student nurses and midwives, what's going to be happening in that area and then the, the politics of it and obviously the decision with regard to the reversal of the FEMP cuts. Um, I think it's important, let's, let's look at what the current situation is with regard to um, student nurses and midwives. Uh, we moved about 20 years ago to a situation of professionalisation uh, of nursing whereby it became a, a degree uh, and there are currently about 4,500 uh, student nurses and midwives. Those who are in fourth year uh, are paid. Uh, they receive uh, an allowance of about 22,000 a year. Uh, there is not a payment to those who are students in first year, second year and third year, uh, but the students do receive an allowance of about €50.79 per week, uh, as well as travel allowances. Uh, so that, that's, that's the current situation. When uh, the pandemic hit, obviously the clinical placement for those nurses had to be uh, discontinued, and quite a number of uh, those uh, students then took up uh, work and were paid as healthcare assistants. Yes, and we know that, and that's ended at the so end of August. So that's ended. So the. So what's uh, happening now? So what's happening now is that the students are back into their educational placement. Um, the final year students, because they're, they're working on the wards uh, as part of their placement, uh, they're being paid the 22,000 a year. And then the, the allowances kick back in for the first, second, and third year. Now, this is different to all other, so all other medical, uh, uh, so, so student doctors and so on don't get paid. What is what's happening now? There are three things uh, that the, the government are doing. There is an immediate review uh, that is happening of the current, the COVID-related allowances. So that, that review is happening. The Taoiseach referred to it today. And he there, said there would be an increase in the allowances. It's, an, it's anticipated that there, there will be. The second is that there is a, a longer-term uh, review around um, nursing education so on. And then the third, which is an issue, because there were a number of allegations that were made about exploitation uh, of student nurses. Uh, that should not have happened. All of the Which, directors... to be have... clear, um, the Taoiseach, your leader said today, they need to go, you know, if you have an issue, student nurses, go and refer them to the HSE. Is that good enough? Well, should he well, not be intervening? Well, what's happened, what's happened is that the uh, directors of nursing uh, in, in every case have been asked uh, to address this. Uh, if any student nurse has a, a serious issue about the way that they were treated, because it's totally unacceptable, and the minister has requested an urgent report with regards to that, because right. the exploitation is not so, acceptable. But on, on, the, on the bigger issues, I, I've okay. kind of outlined what, what, how nurses are paid. I want to let Matt in here. Matt, they see the problems with student nurses, and it's being dealt with. It's not been dealt with. In fact, we were told it would be dealt with. The reason that this has become such an issue is because both Simon Harris and Stephen Donnelly, um, in their respective periods as Ministers for Health, assured student nurses that they would be financially supported. There's a number of reasons. First of all, student nurses do real works 
work in our hospitals on a daily basis. In fact, our healthcare um, um, system would crumble because of the lack of resources elsewhere if it weren't for the fact that student nurses are actually working um, in some cases incredibly long hours and there are countless testimonies. And in fact, if you were to remove that and ask them not to do that or to go through some industrial relations avenue, which the Taoiseach appeared to be suggesting, um, we would have crisis across our hospitals. The second, um, the second point is this. Most um, student nurses, um, in order to make up and to get themselves um, through their period while they're training and going through education, as well as working through those gruelling um, placements and all the rest, usually take on additional work, either part-time work or agency work. That avenue has been denied to them, and that is why okay, there's an urgency um, to that. To so what happened? What happened last week? was that um, Solidarity, People Before Profit, brought a motion before the door. Yes, and, the and call we, for these to matters clear, to be addressed. The Matt, government, we know all of that. Okay, but we don't, because in terms of what, what Malcolm has said, the government, uh, no, the government amended that without a reference to actually increasing financial supports to but, student nurses. The reason why Malcolm is now saying that these measures will be put in place is because, to their credit, student nurses all over the country made their voices heard. They ensured okay. that government has heard that their work um, is real and that it should be valued. But, but the, the work is well. The, the point I would make, Matt, is, is that the work is valued. Is valued. Those nurses that that lost the employment opportunities, as you know, uh, the opportunity for uh, pandemic unemployment payments was, was made. If they was were made part of a continuous it, it, line of employment, it, it, which most aren't. Yeah, as you but know. It, it was it was it was an exception that was made specifically for student nurses. I think the other thing, Matt, you know, you got to remember is the model of student nursing that, that we have here. In no other country in the European Union, uh, and including in the North, do we have a model where student nurses uh, are paid. We do recognise there is real work that is okay. done, but it is it is it is a it is a placement. It is an educational programme. Okay. Uh, Malcolm uh, that is doing is, a really is good job at trying okay, to undo no, your no, really tone. Yeah, if you let me to finish, Malcolm, the really tone deck, deck approach. I didn't actually um, uh, approach of Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil on their Facebook page on the night after the vote actually said the reason why fourth years are paid is because they do Matt, real work. The clear insinuation is that first, second, and third years don't do that, real work. Whereas anybody who set foot on an Irish hospital ward in the last. Um, 20 years um, has seen student nurses being at the front line doing all the other things um, as well as their education and training but actually rolling up their sleeves and getting involved in the work and then to compound the issue. But, but just to go back to the original issue here which was that in the light of judges getting their 2% yeah. pay increase today you said you know that's pretty awful you're paying these pay increases to judges and you can't pay student nurses. It just, but it just are you just politicising no, this in um, fairness? No, because it, 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 you know time and time again, problems. every single time that we're talking about issues that affect real workers and families, whether it's the pension age, whether it's um, supporting our student nurses, you name it, the government announced we'll have a review and a commission. Whenever yes, it comes to a point to the, where... And to this, the payment um, of judges, yeah, Matt, yeah. that's a reversal you accept of FEMPI cuts, which Sinn Féin has been calling for. No, um, if you recall what Sinn Féin always called for, we called for the reversal and the immediate reversal of FEMPA cuts for people earning up to €100,000. We did not. That is not what we said. We, yeah. we said very clearly from the outset and we brought forward um, proposals and we called on the government to introduce legislation that would restore FEMPA cuts to all public okay. sector workers earning less than €100,000. Our intention and nobody's intention was ever that Bertie Ahern would see an increase in pension. It, it, it is. So, um, so what happened in the optics were, were all wrong but what happened was this was the last set of FEMPA cuts 
uh, to be reversed. Uh, it is something that is a position of Sinn Féin and, and in fact nearly every other party that the FEMPI cuts should have been reversed. Uh, the government left it until literally the last minute. Um, the fact that it was at the same time uh, as the student nursing debate, uh, you know, it was wrong. Somebody should have been able to read that in, in, in advance. And I think part of the issue is, is that, you know, Sinn Féin is trying to present uh, the government as not caring about the work of student nurses. The government does care enormously about the work of student nurses. There are more places available for student nursing. Over a long period, we have professionalised uh, nursing education. Uh, there are 4,500 student nurses who are out there at the moment, and that is being recognised. And the fact is, is that the governments have been discussing with the INMO about how to be able to, de 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 you know, develop the profession uh, further. I don't. Um, I, I think there is an issue that uh, you know the government needs to address, looking at how opposition private members' motions are coming up, and there isn't a preparedness on the part of government uh, for some of those. Obviously, this has been damaging. You've accepted that, Malcolm. It's not a good look for Fianna Fáil, but. I have to ask you, uh, Matt, because Sinn Féin hasn't had a great week either, has it? You've had Brian Stanley's tweets and the reaction to that. You've had the fallout of the resignations uh, of members of uh, Sinn Féin because they felt there was some sort of inappropriate pressure put on them. It goes on and on. And we know, obviously, uh, Brian Stanley's going to have to come in and address that in the dawn next week. How are you dealing with the damage that's been done to your party? I'm dealing with the issues that have been raised with me by my constituents, including student nurses, including those people who um, are facing um, the prospect of a really difficult Christmas. Okay, those people who are waiting. Just to the damage that's been done to Sinn Féin, you know, by. I don't know whether there's damage being done. The people will decide whether or not. All I can tell you is that the people who are contacting me, getting in touch with my office, are getting in touch with me on. So you're not live concerned at all about some of the real issues lives. that have been brought up about oh. how Sinn Féin party it runs. No. No, I'm a member of Sinn Féin. Have been since I was a very young person myself, um, I'm absolutely satisfied that we do our best. Of course, like every other organisation, mistakes are made, um, but we're made up of predominantly good people working to try and make our country a better and a fairer place for everybody but to I, live. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Matt, and I, I, I accept in, in your case you are, but unfortunately you have a lot of members, and we've seen now statements by Martin Brown, your TD for Tipperary today, which again uh, raised serious questions around uh, Sinn Féin and its approach. Uh, I raised earlier in the summer about a lot of Sinn Féin supporters where there is a problem with some of your supporters okay. that they engage in systemic racist and homophobic okay. uh, social media trolling. We're going to have to leave it there. It's Unfortunately, we have... You, uh, no, but that's a huge... That's an accusation that's been made countless times. It's not no. true. Uh, Nobody well, associated the evidence with Sinn Féin does that because if they did, oh, they would be kicked out of our party immediately. Okay, so we have to leave it there. Uh, my thanks to Matt Carthy, who was staying with us. Malcolm Byrne, sorry, is staying with us and after the break. Warnings over the COVID vaccine for those with significant allergies and should we open up travel from the US and Canada to Ireland in time for Christmas. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome back. A report today by TDs and senators is urging the government to create a traffic light system for travel from the US and Canada to Ireland in time for Christmas. Well, we're joined now by editor of Air and Travel magazine, Owen Corey. Good evening to you, Owen. Look, it took months for the EU to agree its travel light system, or its traffic light system, rather. Is this realistic? It is quite realistic. Like the EU have gone through two different travel policies while we have been uh, more or less carrying on uh, in our own, to our own agenda. Um, we have signed up to a part of the European traffic light system, not entirely, but it's very easy for us to say we're getting about five flights a day in from the United States. It's a parallel universe. It's like they're being ignored. Everybody has to quarantine who arrives on them. It's very easy to say, let's put a regime in place to allow business travellers to connect, because these are disproportionately important flights for the Irish economy. But just to be clear, the Transport Committee today wasn't just looking for this to apply to those who are coming to Ireland for essential travel. They wanted it to be extended to non-essential travel. They want a regime in place that makes uh, it possible for people to come for non-essential as well. The way that shape is taking across Europe, Kira, is that it usually requires a PCR test before you fly and one about five days after. They weren't specific on that. They, it's not their job to actually draw up the legislation. And of course, these are recommendations, about 20 of them, which go to the government. But it's quite clear that what they've heard from all the people who've come before that committee is that being disconnected makes no sense. And it makes no sense for health reasons because imported cases are less than one quarter of 1% of our infections. How many people are looking on to fly into Ireland for Christmas time from the US and Canada? I mean, what flight numbers are we looking at? In general, we're getting five flights a day. Um, some of the, the frequencies are basically the three major cities, Boston, Chicago, uh, JFK and Newark and also Toronto. The flight frequencies are not being increased by Christmas and the uh, passenger numbers on those flights go up and down a little bit, but not much. We're not seeing a huge volume of bookings for Christmas and you can tell because of prices, for instance, on the European flights. Uh, the price, for instance, on Christmas Eve to and from Birmingham, which would be very difficult one to book at Christmas Eve, the prices went down in the last 24 hours. Something similar is happening from the USA side. There, there is traffic there, but very important, Irish people cannot get into the USA per se. It, they require an awful lot of paperwork. That's been strictly enforced. Americans can come here, but they have to go through that 15-day quarantine. And what the Oireachtas Committee are saying is we can, without dropping our safety standards, we can... Uh, it, uh, do the things, do the testing requirements that other countries are implementing. All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks as always, Owen Corrie. Always a pleasure.
And Fianna Foil Senator Malcolm Byrne is still with us and we're joined by Professor Aoife McLeisett, Professor of Genetics at Trinity College uh, Dublin. Um, Professor, do you agree that this is the right time to open up the skies, allow non-essential travel? Unfortunately, no. I get to be the party pooper every time I speak. I think we, just, we don't have the virus transmission under control even within the country and adding international travel, non-essential international travel is just adding another level of complexity to an already very difficult situation. So we need to get the virus transmission and we need to get it under control in the country first and we probably need to keep the international travel restricted in terms of having quarantines and all of the other kinds of controls that are necessary to stop us re-importing and reseeding the pandemic again. But the traffic light system would mean, you know, that people coming in from the US potentially would have to come in, you know, uh, restrict their movements for five days, you know, show their PCR test if they want to breach that. You know, does that not put enough protections in place? I think if they, it, it, there's a potential for it to be done extremely well, but I don't know if we have the resources to do what is needed. We're already struggling to get the amount of testing we need to be done just for what we have within the country. It's not that it would be theoretically impossible. I just think it's practically and logistically too challenging in terms of if, if somebody could produce a test at the correct intervals to show, you know, they arrived safe and then after a couple of days, you know, in terms of allowing for incubation and everything, that they were still clear, then that could be okay, but I just don't think it's practical. And so to have a practical thing to do, we need to restrict... We need to restrict travel because it's the only way of ensuring that we don't import the virus again. There's just one other thing that that Transport Committee um, put in the report today, and that's that the PCR tests should be subsidised, uh, Malcolm, no more than €50. Euro. Is that being considered by government? Uh, it, it is. We, we need to look at a way that we can obviously safely open uh, air travel. And I agree with Aoife uh, that... You know, it's probably not the right time at the moment, um, but it's it's going to be important, and particularly as we have the rollout of the vaccine, uh, that we allow people to travel, um, but that we have the testing at the airports. Uh, and I know that we've seen it in you know in Frankfurt, in Reykjavik, there have been examples people test before they fly and then they land and they're they're tested afterwards. I think some of it is also going to be around um, consumer confidence. Uh, you know that that people will start to feel uh, to feel safe. The idea of subsidising those PCR tests is being considered. Uh, it's it's one of the issues that's on the agenda. Uh, I think we've we've got. To, I mean, we're an island. Uh, we've got to look at ways whereby we can continue to to have uh, air travel. Um, back opening up uh, and it's particularly important for our airports oh, because right. uh, if, if not they're going to be in serious trouble. Uh, Professor I want to ask you about the vaccine because obviously there was word coming from the UK where it's being rolled out that there were two um, NHS workers who had a reaction, an allergic reaction to this vaccine which I think will cause concern. Yes. Um, can you try and alleviate some of that concern? So um, I mean the details we have on this are relatively limited because of course of the privacy of these individuals involved but the, yeah they were individuals who received it because they'll be administering the virus and they had allergic reactions. But what we know is that these two people have a very a history of very serious allergy already. And so these were people who were carrying an EpiPen, for example. That's what we know about them. So you carry an EpiPen for a very serious type of allergy, not for a mild allergy. So what's happened then is now the UK have revised their guidelines. And in light of this new evidence and they're now saying that people with allergies perhaps may not be suitable for the vaccine and that's something to 
take into consideration and in discussion with their GP who will understand their own medical history. And there'll be lots of people watching today thinking, but I have an allergy, I have an allergy to nuts or I have an allergy to pollen or dust mite. Yeah. Is it all allergies? I, I doubt it's all allergies. I think when we're talking about an EpiPen, we're talking about a very, very strong allergy. Um, so this vaccine has been extensively tested before it even went into any um, public health system, you know, the, the testing before it was approved and was tested more than any vaccine that has been tested before. So about 40,000 individuals. So we don't know, in, in, so we know the things that happen kind of on average in 40,000 people, but maybe there's a one in a million thing that you don't see when you're testing with 40,000. This is normal for medicines and uh, vaccines and any kind of medicine might have certain side effects. So whether your child is getting, you know, the MMR or you're getting the flu vaccine, is there an equal chance that you could take a severe allergic reaction to one of those? I haven't heard about an allergic reaction in the context of those ones. Um, I don't know the details off the top of my head, but those are very well established vaccines. So for the, those ones, we, the doctors will know exactly. And if you want to ask a GP, they will know precisely the frequency of rare side effects for those. But, you know, this is exactly what testing is for. These, va these vaccines have been extensively tested. It's not that the scientists come along and go, we made something in the lab. I can't imagine how it could go wrong. Let's just give it to 20 million people. It's tested before. It's, it's tested in steps. This has gone through many, many, many testing steps. And now that it's being delivered to people. So it doesn't concern you? It doesn't concern me and I'll definitely be taking the vaccine. Okay. Uh, Malcolm, you had, I think, a number of people, didn't you? A handful of people, I think 10 outside of your office, um, uh, protesting earlier this week. Does the level of concern and hesitancy around this vaccine concern you? And what's the government going to do about it? Well, vaccines work. Uh, and I think it's very important for all of us who are in the public eye to stand up for science. Uh, I had a, a small anti-vaccine protest outside the office. There's certain people you're never going to convince. Um, but the point that we're talking about uh, around those people who have questions. So the process by which the, the, the vaccine came about, how it's going to be administered. Uh, and certainly that is the case. I know Minister Donnelly has very clearly given a commitment that as part of the rollout, it will be communicated exactly you know, what has happened. Uh, the, the testing process, the fact that there's you know rigorous testing, the European Medicines Agency is going to have to uh, is right. going to have to license this. I think also one thing that's really welcome uh, today is All the right. fact that social media giants are going to take on the disinformation about vaccines. All right, we've leave it there. Thank you to both of my guests. Nat will be back here tomorrow night at 10 p.m. Thank you for watching at home. Good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.